one thing that is sure is that you know the the sudasa's lineage or bharata's lineage as we talk instead of saying sudasa's lineage it should be king bharata's lineage king bharata is the 18 generations above sudas king bharata's lineage they insisted on vedic values and vedic uh, beliefs and they wanted to establish the vedic vedas okay so obviously what it means is probably the other people were not as keen on the vedic principles and the aryan principles if you look follow them follow this through it comes down to um, your, your mahabharata war the kuru is actually a descendant of sudas okay. and then the, the kingdom starts and then you get this uh, division between two cousins in the pandavas and kauravas and battle and again the battle again in krishna explains in, in bhagavad gita and why why is there is war between cousins because they're all you know uh, blood brothers feel they shouldn't be fighting each other but krishna explains you know why this thing is done is that done because of dharma all right so this is follows through and i think he probably says it better to persist for a period of time and why it persisted and maybe because of that i think we have hinduism from what it is now thank you everybody for joining me to uh, for this hour of uh, discussion and, and what i little i know about uh, dashrajna as an uh, uh, eventful turning point in uh, history of india um most people as soon as you mention the name dashrajna will turn around and say what nobody has ever heard of uh, this title dashrajna actually one or two people stood up in, uh, in my talks and said is it a man or is it a king or is it uh, something else so i had to actually sit down and describe in in little bit of details so what exactly is it it is an epic battle described as um, tanya just now said in book 7 in uh, most of it is actually in um, in the hymn 18 of the book 7 but it gets mentioned in uh, other parts of the same book and also in book 3 and book 6 to some extent and it is a battle between uh, extremely powerful kings and two of the most powerful sages of the whole entire vedic scripture battle itself is uh, full of intrigue the rivalry of between the sages and kings and a desire of dominance the dominance in, um, in form of possession and dominance of dharma and finally dharma wins as you will find out later on this may be the turning point in the entire hist- ancient history of india i'll come to that a little bit later on and it, i also think that this is a prelude to the great epics to come the great ramayana mahabharata in probably a couple of hundred hundred years after that and this battle unlike uh, either ramayan's war or mahabharat went on for many years in mahabharat we know it only took a few days and uh, ramayan nobody knows probably uh, again a few more few days but this battle went on for for a couple of years and it was fought in two different fronts one in the west on the banks of the river parshni or river ravi as it called now and the other one on river emna on, on the east the protagonist of the battle is king sudas is the descendant of uh, uh, puru i'll come to that in, in a little bit more detail much later and a confederation of uh, 10 plus um, kings uh, i mean those days not all of them were kings some of them were tribal chiefs and some of them kings some of them are, are emperors i'll come to that when i talk about a little bit about rigveda as as such and most of them the enemies were actually aryans i mean we people think that the battle probably was between the aryans and the dasas or dasyus uh, um, or somebody else from outside but the, actually this was a 
a battle among cousins. You know, Mahabharat, most, most of you know the story of Mahabharat is the battle between the two cousins is exactly the same here. And same in Ramayana, in Rama and Ravan. Ravan, though he's mounted as Dhanava Asura, he was a Brahmin. So he was one of the Aryans who fought each other. So it's nothing different. Uh, but where it started was, it starts long, long, long time ago. And I'll come to that a little bit later. And where did it take place? It took place on the east or the uh, Emana banks. Uh, I don't know whether I can, can see people here. This is what I say now that that's the Emana here. And this is Dushadvati. And this is uh, River Ravi. Uh, it's called Iravati in this one. But as I said, most of the uh, battle took place on the, on the two fronts. One on the River Emana. That's the River Emana. This is River Ganga. I can see that Drishadvati and that is uh, Saraswati. And I'll come to that a little bit later on. That is the River Ravi, where in Madra, that's probably Harappa. And so the battle took place somewhere here on the east and then somewhere here on the western front. Okay. Now, this is what it looks like now, River Ravi. And this is River Emana. This is what it looks like now. But it may not be the exact place where the battle took place. Now, we have to, to understand the battle. We have to go back in time. In time means all the way to Manu. We know we, know, we, have, we have heard of Manu. Manu, as you know, is not a single person. Um, there were several. And some of the texts tell me that there are 14 Manus and we are in the seventh Manmantara at the moment. This is Vaivasvata Manu. Nobody knows exactly what period it is. And the Puranas tell that, you know, Brahma created Marichi, yeah, and whose son was Kashyapa. So according to our uh, scriptures, we are all children of uh, Rishi Kashyapa. They, we actually consider Kashyapa as the progenitor of all human beings across the globe. Why was the Manu was grandson of uh, Sage Kashyapa, and he is considered the the ruler of Dravida um, uh, uh, Kingdom. And again, the place of the Dravida Kingdom is is not known. And we, I don't want to get into this conflict of uh, Dravidians and Aryans, but there is no such thing as the Dravidians and Aryans. That's not the uh, the point. The point is there was a Dravida king, and Manu was the ruler of Dravida king. And we have heard of the Matsya and the Great Flood and Vishnu coming in the form of a fish uh, right to help Manu. And uh, when the flood comes, he's taken up to the, to the north, to the Mount Meru, and he's, he's, the, the ship lands there. And that's where the colonization north started. That's when the Gangetic Plains, Saraswati Plains started being <coughs> colonized. So why was Manu had 10 children? Out of the 10, the two of them are important to our story. One is Ila, and the other one who started the lunar dynasty. And the second one is uh, um, Ikshwaku, who started the solar dynasty from which uh, Rama comes. Ila, then further generations go on till we get Nahusha and the Yayati. Yayati is Nahusha's grandson. Yayati marries Devyani. Devyani is the uh, uh, daughter of uh, Muni, Shukra Muni, one of the greatest Munis of uh, of the Vedic uh, period. Uh, he was the priest of Asuras. You see, in those days, Asura was not a bad being. Asuras were the same as, as gods. They were all powerful and they followed the, the Arya Dharma. And so he was an Asura king and um, Shukra was his, his priest. And Devyani was uh, uh, Shukra's uh, daughter. And he also married Sharmishta. There is a bit of a 
tussle between Devyani and Shamistam, and she takes Shamistam as, as, as a maid servant, and she happens to be an Asura daughter. She's a daughter of the Vrishapavan, who is an Asura king. Now, this is where the problem starts. Devayani gets three children, two children, Yaddu and Thurvasa, whereas Sharmista gets three children, Druhyu, Anu and Puru. Puru is the youngest. And Ayati being what he is, is a slight, sort of a bit of a playboy. He wants to spend his life as, as a young man and live the life of luxury. So he asks his five children, uh, but he gets cursed by Shukra. When Shukra finds out that Ayati um, um, has gone behind his back and married this Asura king's daughter, he gets very angry and curses Ayati um, and says, you want to lose your youth and you become suddenly an old man. Suddenly he turns into an uh, old geriatric person who can hardly walk. He's, he's absolutely distressed. So he asked um, um, Shukra for forgiveness and ask him uh, how to um, get away from this. Shukra says, okay, you can ask one of your children if they're happy to uh, swap their youth with him. And he goes to the eldest, Yadu, and then goes down. Everybody refuses, except the youngest one, Puru. Puru agrees to swap his uh, youth with uh, the old man. So, Yayati uh, uh, becomes young again and lives for a long time. When the time comes, Puru Yayati relents his uh, decision and gives up his um, youth back to Puru. And because Puru was so good when he, uh, at the time of his need, he uh, gives the central part of the empire. This is the, what's called the, the greatest place in the world. Uh, this is the place around the river Saraswati. And he gives the surrounding peripheral lands to the other four children, which did not go down very well, especially Edu and Druhus, because they thought they were the uh, Edus and Thurvasas, because they thought they were the eldest and they should get the uh, <coughs> the central part of the empire. Unfortunately, that, that didn't happen. I think progressed. Edu Thurvasas became very strong, even in the in where they were given. They start they slowly start to um, um, in, expand their empire and they come down the dynasty. I think uh, probably about halfway down, we see King Bharata. He's the man who, from which the, the name Bharata uh, uh, has come to our country, and he expands the central part of the uh, of our of our country. And this again gets uh, the other uh, children um, uh, cousins get very upset. And after about eighteen generations down from Bharata, we get Devadasa and Sudas, and this is where the problem starts. By this time, um, the Anu king Abhyavartin uh, Chayamana. He um, has a son who is not really very good. Uh, so he sends away his grandson, Kavi Chayamana, uh, to, to learn under Sage uh, Jamadagni, who becomes extremely powerful and very knowledgeable. And he, but before he, he could um, ascend throne, Abhyavartin Chayamana dies. So Kavi Chayamana is, uh, ascends the throne. Much to the chagrin of some of the uh, people in the, uh, in the country of uh, Ariana or the Anu uh, country in the northwest, which now is the Persian country, Iran and Iraq, and that part of the, part of the Afghanistan. And he always felt that, you know, Purus have hard, done them very bad because uh, they should have had um, uh, the central part of the country. I'll come to Saraswati a little bit later on. So the, the, line by line, you, know, you can see the, 
the genealogy continuing from Ikshwaku, Pritu, Tarasadasu, Purukutsa, Dushanku, Harishchandra, and further down, as the, the, the contemporary of Sudas is, is, is a man called Rohitashwa. Rohitashwa is quite friendly with Sudas, he's still at the, uh, after the battle. Okay, so we'll go to the next slide. So this is the Yayati uh, skirts. 16th generation after um, the Bharata, you get Divadasa, who en- enlarges his empire still further. But the central part is around Saraswati is given to Puru. This is where the, the crux of the problem is. I need to talk about Saraswati. Saraswati is throughout the Rigveda, you'll find this is the one river which has been extolled. There's an entire hymn on the river Saraswati. And it is called the river which flows from the mountains all the way through to the, to the ocean. And the way it is positioned, especially in Nadistuti, you can see from uh, east to west, this is the river after the Rishadvati. So it is between the river Yamuna, Rishadvati and the east, and Sutlej and Bias and Ravi on, on the west. So this is the river which was flowing from the mountains, from probably the Himalayas down, the Shivaliks down into the Haryana, Punjab, Rajasthan, and then going to the, into the Kutch. So because of the size of the river, the whole land was in, extremely fertile. Plus also down south, because of the Aravalli Mountains, the natural resources was extreme, like bronze, cop, for copper and tin, for them to make bronze weapons and um, etc. Uh, was, was probably the best part of the, uh, of, of the entire empire. So everybody wanted the, the central place, especially the, the capital, Ilam, probably Rakhikari or Kalibangam, I don't know which one it is. But what happened was... River Saraswati started to dry up. We know for a fact there were at least two major tectonic events. The one around 2300 BC, which lifted the, the, the Asian plate by about six, between six and 20 meters over a length of about 100 kilometers. This made river satellites make an unnatural turn. But it makes a very unusual turn, about 90 degrees, which rivers do not do that because you know the natural forces of water if the water turns around 90 degrees, there is a lot of erosion on the acute um, angle and you get destroyed. So you never get an acute angle, but river settlage does have one. A river settlage by the name itself, in you know, Shatudri means 100 braids. It's got lots of channels. So we have now, you satellite imaging, we've discovered at least 100 or even more, paleo, what you call a paleo channels or the dried beds of these the river beds. They all come down to these so-called perennial rivers called and some seasonal rivers of Gagar and Pukra, which are the remnants of river Saraswati. So what the experts tell me is between say about 2900 and 1900 BC, river Saraswati started to deplete and by about 1900 BC, it was almost, almost completely dried up, leaving two segments, one up in the north called Gagar and one in the Pakistan side called Hakra. It is only seasonal. There's water only during the uh, uh, rainy season. There is no other, no, no place. To give you another example, in, by, by the time of Mahabharata, River Saraswati doesn't exist. Mahabharata talks about the Saraswati disappearing in a place called Vinashana. It's in the middle of Rajasthan desert. So it disappears. So by this time, so we, we can roughly gauge the period of Mahabharata. It was definitely after the Saraswati had disappeared. And coming, to, coming later on to the pranic period, Saraswati doesn't exist at all. The Ganga becomes more prominent because the population had migrated from the Harappan civilization down into the Gangetic plains by this time. 
because of the um, loss of the the water but now where they have found over 2000 harappan sites in this in this desert in like bikaner and jaisalmer the area and these places some of them are huge in the size of manhattan uh, at that time um, to survive that, I mean, for that kind of population to survive in a desert is not possible they should have had a, a fertile land they should have had some sort of water supplies so it's, it's possible that the saraswati did exist did exist in this place where they said say it is did exist so this is why saraswati is very important so let's just go back to rigveda i mean I, i'm not trying to teach uh, rigveda here because i'm not an expert i know very little about rigveda but from what i can understand is you know this is is an all important uh, scripture for us not just for us for the entire world you know because it's these quoted by many of the western scientists uh for uh, the material that's contained in the rigveda which how they did this how they found this is extremely difficult or uh, if not impossible to uh, determine basically it has got 10 books or mandalas there are 1028 uh, hymns 10600 verses when was it composed depends on who you talk to on which book you read it could be 4 to 6000 bc or it could be 2000 3000 bc and some people go so far to say is only 1400 to 1600 bc after the aryans came from the the northwest from kazakhstan and uh, uzbekistan and that places and they brought the rigveda into the country around 1400 bc so you take it from where which which one you want to believe but we, we know that reading through the rigveda itself it was compiled and codified and after the battle of dashrajna later on the kuru kings classified into the number you know from 1 to 10 and this numbering is also slightly odd it you know why one would think the the numbering would be from 1 to 10 one would be the oldest and the 10th would be the latest but it doesn't go that way it is it's based on the size of the uh, of the the hymns and the size of the book number 1 it goes from the descending order of the size from 1 to 10 actually number 1 and number 10 are the newest books probably number 10 is the is probably the latest book and the oldest book is book 6 but the most of the story from uh, of dashrajna comes from book 7 a book 8 and book 9 what's happened is people have added on afterwards so quite a lot of mixed age but generally speaking book 6 is the oldest and book 10 is the youngest at uh, the number 1 to 10 is in the descending order of number of sizes we don't have um, very old collections the oldest collection of rigvedic uh, manuscript we have is in in pune deccan institute in pune which goes back to 1484 um, and each book is divided into four parts samhita brahmana um, and aranyakas and upanishads i'm not going into the detail because that's that's beyond this this talk but going to what happened to the vedic gods and why did it they disappear in the vedic gods were indra agni varuna mitra and bhaspati now indra actually continued to be the one of the leading deities until about 3rd to 5th century ad the satavahanas their um, royal uh, deity was indra krishna actually didn't come into the fold till much later shri rama was there so the earliest temples of hindu gods are actually rama but whereas the, the indra's temples in indra's um, um, idols were there till about between 3rd and 5th century ad and mitravana continues today 
um, they are the, one of the main deities of Zoroastrianism. Mitra Varnas were also the deities of Hittites and Mitannis. I mean, that's very important for people who want to follow the, the aging of this uh, 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 dating of the, uh, the Dashajna Bashal, because there, are, there is a, a treaty between the Hittites and Mitannis, which actually describes some of the uh, events and some of the people from uh, uh, the Harappan civilization as well as their own. But Hittites and Mitannis, you know, remember, it is not in India, it's in Turkey, so it's quite far away. So you, you can imagine that actually instead of the Aryans coming from outside India, I think it's more likely that the, India, the people from India migrated outwards. But there was, there's been tax migration. Even now, you see people from India go abroad and a lot of people from abroad come to live in India. So the same thing happened, you know, thousands of years ago. And Mitra was, was the main deity of Mitraism. Mitraism is a very powerful religion in the early Roman times. I mean, the, most of the soldiers followed the Mithraism, especially when the Christianity started to take, um, take, take power after the, you know, the Emperor Constantine started in the third century. The Roman soldiers were afraid because Christian, they were praising a, a human being, Jesus Christ, as God, whereas they believed in some super being with, like Mitra. So Mithraism continued as a, some sort of a subversive um, um, religion among the Roman soldiers until about the 3rd or 4th century AD. And it was uh, put down very badly persecuted by the, the uh, Christians at that time. Now, who are the actors in this drama? Now, on one side, we have Sudas and his two um, uh, sages, Vasishta and uh, Vishwamitra, which he, he changes side after, after halfway through, or probably in the beginning itself. And we have the High Hehas, this is another tribes who, whose king, with the Havia, uh, in the eastern frontier around the Emana as a, as a support. This is a one-man band, really, on this side. Whereas the opposition, the confederacy, Yundu is just Dasharajna and ten kings. There are more than ten groups. It was led by Kabi Chayamana, is an Anu king, and he was assisted by Vishwamitra. And the, some of the Purus, Purus are the same people as Sudas, well, Sudas is Puru Bharata dynasty, church uh, tribe. Whereas other Purus were disgruntled with this, uh, with this rule or whatever. And the Edus, Drukhus, Anus, these were the major uh, uh, kings of surrounding countries. And the Alinas were probably from Gandhara. And Paktas, as you were talking about, Aparna was talking about this before, Paktas and Patsum, Pashtuns. And the Balinas from Bolan Pass. And, and then Shivas, Vaisanins, Himyus, Vakarnas. These are all the surrounding smaller tribes. They all join hands with uh, Kavi Chaimana because Sudas, when he ascends the uh, throne, he, uh, like what they did, did that when he became a Chakravarti, they had to do the Ashwamedha Yagna. The Ashwamedha Yagna, they let the horse loose and the country saved itself and offered the uh, compensation or a war against them. In the end, so all these countries were occupied by Sudas. By one way or the other through the Ashwamedha Yagna. So they were all unhappy. And on the eastern uh, frontier, the Beda, Beda king was uh, probably a, a Dasyu king, uh, along with the help of uh, the three tribals like Ajas, Shigru, and Exu. Uh, they uh, fought the battle. When did it take place? Well, again, lots and lots of people have said lots and lots of things. And, um, you know, I'll just quote three people. David Frawley, I'm sure most people have heard of um, uh, Vamadeva Shastri, as he's called, and he's been 
a fantastic Indologist, and he's done a huge amount of research, especially on yoga. And he feels that uh, this was probably from 3100 BC. He bases his uh, position on astronomical references, mostly in the position of the stars and uh, etc. On, on the in the Rigvedic uh, scripture. And P. L. Bhagava is, is a no, noted historian. He uh, he puts it as 2350 BC because he based it on the Puranic English. I'll come to the English a little bit later on. And he puts it regnal years of about 18 years per person, per king. But Niraj Mahanka believes that it's a bit too short. Now we know king lists, kings usually last between 20 and 25 years. Some of them last only two or three years, but the majority of them last around 20 to 25. So look at the, the European kings and also the Sumerian, Mesopotamian and the Egyptian kings. They lasted around between 20 and 25 years at that time. So he uses the 20 to 25 years as the regnal uh, period, and he puts it down as 2700 BC. That is looking at uh, towards the beginning of the mature phase of Harappan civilization, just before the beginning of the mature phase. What are the statistics of these, uh, this, this battle? 10 kings plus tribals. There were 66,600 warriors, and out of which about 12,000 belonged to the Anu and Dhrufu tribes. And at the end of the battle, the Beda king on the uh, east coast offers 2,000 horses, which says heads of horses. I'm sure he didn't chop up the heads and give it to Sudha. It's not much use, that is. So 2,000 uh, horses were given to uh, Sudha's as compensation of the battle. And thousands of cattle were offered to Sudha's at the end of the battle by the other kings. And Sudha's, out of gratitude to Asista for his help in the battle, it gives him lots of gifts, like milk, uh, cattle, cows, land, etc. Again, just going to the brief, Sudas is made uh, Chakravatin by Devadasa. What's happening was, Kavi Chayamana was flexing his muscles around and the other uh, tribes and other kings surrounding, they were flexing their muscles and trying to encroach onto the, the Bharata Empire. And Devadasa's son, Pujavana, was a mild-mannered person. He was more into uh, um, religion, dharma, and he was in, into uh, battle and war, etc. His grandson, who was taught by Vishwamitra, Sudas, he was very powerful, and he was uh, a, a king material. So he decided, Devadasa decided with the help of uh, both Vishwamitra and her sister, that Sudasa should become uh, the emperor and the king. So he makes him the uh, uh, the king. Now, at the same time, Kavi Chaimana ascends the throne, probably in what we call Mundigak now, at that time, uh, probably the uh, capital of uh, the Anu king. So he, uh, the, when he uh, ascends the throne, he goes to um, avenge the, uh, the faults of what happened in the past and bring back the Anu's power over the central part of the country, that is Purubharata land, and assembles a large army of 66,600 warriors with the help of the other, other people. And he gets other tribes as well, as I was uh, telling you before. And so Sudas gets this message that, message that Chayamana is um, marching through the northwestern frontier into the, uh, into the and he had crossed the river Indus, crossed the Chinab and the uh, um, uh, Sydney, and so he's coming towards the river Ravi. 
he sets off with this uh, with his army towards the uh, western front at the same time he gets a message from the east from uh, uh, king vitahavya haheya saying that look beda is attacking the eastern frontier and you're destroying our uh, our country our kingdom you we need you need to come and give um, give us a hand your help so there is a disagreement between vishwamitra and uh, vashishta vashishta insists that he should um, go to uh, uh, the the west coast and deal with the the major problem first before sending people to the to the east vishwamitra disagrees with and he storms out of the the court and then uh, he went and join, goes and joins um, uh, um, kavi chaimana now what happens they pass they cross the river ravi and um, the battle is one sided because obviously you can imagine sudas is a one man with uh, his army and uh, uh whereas kavi uh, chaimana has got a huge army of 66600 soldiers and uh, elephants and horses etc so the the battle is one sided and he, he gets routed so they are they are running back escaping the uh, the, the battlefield and uh, coming they want to try to cross the river ravi which is in spate the river was in sage vasishta uh, prays to god indra for help but doesn't this remind you of krishna and his help to pandavas eh? exactly the same sort of the problem here so indra helps and a dike appears on the river uh, ravi the whole river slows down and allows the um, the sudas's army to uh, to cross and when the uh, chaimana's army the confederate army tries to cross the dike is broken and there's a flood the most of these um, the warriors drown and get killed and there is there is a battle actually on the river itself and the chaimana he fights very bravely he's, he's a very brave soldier you see you know there is a lot of good things said about the chaimana in in veda he's not considered to be a, a bad person I mean, if you look at Mahabharat, for example, you know, Duryodhana, Suryodhana, and all those people are not considered to be bad people. They were badly advised and they went into war against Pandavas. So they, in essence, is they are not really bad people. So it's exactly the same. The Chaimana is not a bad person. He gets bad advice and bad decisions were made, and he goes to war, thinking what he was doing right for his country, Panu Kingdom. Okay. so but he gets he fights very bravely and he gets killed on the on the river itself so indra obviously helps sudas and vasishta and doesn't help vishwamitra and chaimana but during this period this battle goes on for you know unlike the as i said before mahabharat and ramayana it goes on for for a long period and sudas gets a message about the um, dire position of the east coast so he sent soldiers across to the east coast and to to east towards the uh, east border towards the emana and fights in the bedas and his uh, colleagues ajasi grus and then he uh, defeats bedas and he gets uh, compensation by the bedas uh, so this at the end of the battle the central part of the country is stabilized so sudar is offered 2000 horses as said hatched by his allies and thousands of cattle offered as a uh, compensation and says the sister gets honored by sudas now we come to the end of the battle so you know battle is a battle there are so many battles in, in rigveda itself there is a, this is actually 
is battling Purushni with the second battle, which is not the first battle. So why this battle is so important? There are so many other battles uh, in, in the Vedic scripture itself and also after Vedas, there are so many battles. So why this battle is important? Why should I think that this should be made into an epic? And if you look at Oxford Dictionary, it says it's a, a long poem, typically one derived from ancient oral tradition, narrating the deeds and the adventures of legendary figures or the past history of a nation. Now, there are one or two problems with this, uh, this um, uh, definition. The Dasharajna itself is not a very long point. And probably Mahabharata and Ramayana were neither. This was made into a long epic by future generations because this was uh, eulogized, all the people were eulogized, and the actual song was sung by minstrels, the poets, the authors added on, and there were so many subplots and so additional uh, stories that added on, and it became a huge. Mahabharata is now still considered probably the, the longest poem in existence at the moment. So this is mainly because for all the other people, not the original uh, um, the poem itself. So unfortunately, Rigveda being hidden in the, in the Rigveda, you must not forget that until probably about 100 years ago, the only people who could read Sanskrit and only people who were allowed to read the Vedic scriptures were the, the, the high caste Brahmins. No one else was allowed to read them. Unfortunately, this stifled research, this stifled decipherment. Even today, people tell me up to 40% of Rig Veda, even though it has been translated, it has not been deciphered because Rig Veda is a very complex um, uh, book. I mean, I've read, I've read Sanskrit version. I've read um, uh, the English translations of our Griffiths. I've read uh, Prasanna Gautamas, which I think is probably one of the simplest translations. And even, even the simplest translation of Prasanna Gautama is, is, is actually quite complex. It needs somebody to decipher these things to, um, for us to understand. So when that's the case, so it was not in common knowledge that Dasharajna was a battle which actually made the central part of India to what it is, and then the whole the nation actually was born. Even though King Bharata established uh, the Bharata kingdom, the establishment of Vedic Dharma and the Hindu Dharma was actually done during the period of Dasharajna. For me, it forms a transition from uncertainty to centralization of power and Vedic knowledge. It strengthened the hold of poor Bharatas and their Vedic values. The reason why I say this is Sudas in his, in his actions and also Devadasa in his actions has shown that they upheld the Vedic values which we hold uh, true today and which is probably the center of uh, our Hindu dharma as we know and which teaches faith rather than religion. So it is not religion, it is the faith which we have to understand. Because a lot of people mistake Hindu as a religion. Hinduism, Hinduism is not a religion, as you all know. It's a faith. Puru Bharatas understood that and they established the Vedic values in the central part of the country. And that actually formed the nucleus of the future of the country, the future of India. And even though it was established by Bharata, he did not expand the, the Vedic knowledge beyond its borders. Whereas Sudas was instrumental in establishing the Vedic knowledge and making it as the 
probably the national and the regional values to be propagated and to be followed by everybody so this is a also a conflict conflict between basic human values and position of wealth and faith because what did the chimana want he wanted the, the land he wanted more cattle he he wanted more wealth he wanted his, his ancestral property he was not after the the the, the vedic values and vedic uh, um, uh, beliefs whereas sudas was fighting for the for the human faith and human values this is where why i think you know it's very important that we should uh, identify this as an epic kobaini the quote shri krishna in bhagavad gita he quotes the vedas so much as a basis of his, t- his teachings and we believe bhagavad gita is our core uh, uh, faith so if we believe that you know, krishna was giving us the uh, the knowledge that we should follow for generations to come but i think the, this is where it was established probably a few hundred years before krishna was rigveda which is considered to be the, the greatest living scripture in the world by not by just indians by westerners as well was codified and formatted under sudas so it's very important to understand that so this happened only because of dashrajna so he understood after the battle that this, he has to do something to stabilize the, the the faith and the faith of the people and also he established the the kuru bharata dynasty from there onwards i mean we, we we can go further down and that's where the kuru kingdom starts and then the pandavas and the kauravas come and there is a further battle but then that's that's a different story altogether and ekshwakus come on the on the, the other side actually the cousins and the shri rama he in ramayan look at ramayan how many places the vedas are quoted and anything that is said in veda is considered to be the truth so i i think drashrajna has done more towards the unification of india than anything else in our ancient history now i've i've done a little blog probably uh, about 4 5 years 6 years ago uh, on the in this thing if anybody wants to read it um, um it's on harappa uh, series uh, on wordpress and if there is any this is the the hymn that i was talking about this is the main hymn uh, the uh, hymn 7 uh, 18 of uh, book 7 and this is the english translation i uh, can read it's fairly simple english you can understand it's easy to understand uh, but i jashajna is actually quoted elsewhere not just in uh, book 7 but book 7 is the main part and by it's also in book 6 and book 3 yeah, and sudas gets mentioned in lots of places and divodasa is also mentioned in lots of places so you can read that as well thank you very much for your attention if there are any questions i'll be more than happy to take you see if you do an ashwamedha yagya yeah. that itself is an imperial undertaking it is right so uh, i mean it is not any different from a regular invasion except that you have this ashwamedha also to go with it and yeah. seek tribute from all your surrounding uh, kings so yeah. how does that make sudas any different from any other conqueror in general yeah this is a question is completely outside dashrajna okay anyway um this is a question that thousands of people have asked for for centuries because how does this make any any other king or an emperor different to hitler and hitler did exactly the same thing he occupied the, the lands across europe and north africa and he killed slaughtered millions of people in the same thing 
So how is he different to uh, what King Ashoka, Ashoka did? He also did exactly the same thing and to realize what he did was wrong. So Ashwamedha Yagna is, is just a, uh, a, a method of what you, uh, an emperor was supposed to do. You know, the Manu, according to his uh, rules and regulations, a Chakravarti when he forms, he is supposed to strengthen his kingdom. One way of strengthening his kingdom is supposed to strengthen his borders. And any threats around the borders, he's supposed to subjugate. Okay. I mean, this is my understanding of it. I, I fully understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Because it's in, you did exactly what any other conqueror did. But in this context, where a Chaimana was basically intent on taking more and more land, without the explicit understanding of uh, Ashwamedha Yagna, whereas Sudhas did it with Ashwamedha Yagna. But again, and the war itself comes. He was not fighting for a land. Do you understand? My point of view. I'm not trying to justify what he did. I'm just trying to explain what is written in the book. Uh, Dr. Kashyap, I would like you to speak more about the defeated tribes, particularly like I mentioned the Pakhtas and the Parsas. Who may be the who may or may because Sanjeev Sanal does not give a conclusive answer. He says they could be the Pakhtuns and the Persa could be the Persians. But most of all, I would like you to speak about the Yazidis among the Kurds in northern Iraq, Iran or Iraq, northern northern yeah. Iraq. Iraq, Iraq, because their um, culture is uh, uncannily very similar to Indians, to Hindus. They have spiral yeah. temples. They yeah. They face the sun and pray and they believe in reincarnation and so many, uh, and, and they believe in the peacock god. Now, peacock is yeah. not native to Iran, Iraq. Yeah. It is. No, no. So, I would, it, do you think that... You're absolutely these, right. I mean, the, we, are, we are getting into a slightly murky waters here with the Aryan migration theory. All right. See, the Aryan migration theories was started by Max Muller and um, propagated later on by most of the Western authors at the time, and it's still prop being propagated by several of our Indian colleagues. But unfortunately, um, you know, I do not believe there was an Aryan migration. At the same time, there's some people who are trying to say that the, the Indians, the Aryans, migrated from India outwards into, into the West. But what I believe is, I mean, which the DNA studies recently have confirmed, that there's been transmigration from East to West over thousands of years. Now, I was talking about Hitanis and Mittites and um, Hittites and Mitannis. You know, there is a there is a, actually a, a treaty between the the Hittites and Mitannis after a prolonged war in probably 1300 BC. Okay, in this treaty, all the all the Rigvedic gods are mentioned as coming to support the as as a as a, as an evidence to the, this this particular treaty. So you can see that this is the so people who believe in our migration. We will say that the 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 guys from uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan came down via Turkey into into India, and this is where it shows you this migration took place around 1400 to 1300 BC. But whereas people who believe the Indians went abroad, look, Indians went to uh, um, uh, these places. But having said that, it is possible, most likely, the Aryans migrated from India across to the Northwest and into the Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and Sumeria. Because, you know, we have seen now places in a place called Ladash in Iraq, where there is evidence to show that there is a, 
then Harappan scenes. And there is a person called Shuri Lushu, is considered to be a, a translator from Meluha. They used to call uh, Harappan country as Meluha, and from Meluhan language to uh, uh, the Sumerian language. So there were, there were, you know, there is. A, if you look at Akkadian history, uh, you can say that you see that you know um, the Akkadian books show that there are ships from Meluha used to come and dock in uh, in Akkad. We still don't know where Akkad existed. Uh, we still don't know. There's a place in, in Bahrain. If you go to Bahrain, Kuwait, that sort of area where there is, um, you know, uh, those days is called Bilmun and Magan, and there, unfortunately, you're not allowed to dig as much as you would in any other part of the world because of the religious beliefs. They do not do not allow uh, digging of graves, etc. So unless, so this is probably where you will find a Rosetta stone. Until you find a Rosetta stone, which would uh, have uh, both a Sumerian uh, script. Uh, uh, and uh, in the script, we won't know exactly what the, uh, the transaction was between these two civilizations. We have uh, found lots of Harappan uh, evidence in the Sumeria, but we have not found many of the Sumerian, like for example, seals in, in the Harappan civilization. So there is, there was a one, looks like the most one-sided uh, Mayan. This to me suggests the Harappans went across to the, the West and they didn't come down to the East. But recent RNA studies have shown there has been some mixture between the uh, people in Iran, Iraq, and as well as, uh, as India. So it's possible that there was transmigration rather than migration of one side, the other. So and in terms again, of, related, I think related. the Paktuns are, are, you know, probably uh, the, one of the tribes in the Northwest around the, around the Indus Valley, going into Balochistan and going into, into the Paktun area. And the Pashtuns, and also in the same people, Anus and Druhus, Druhus probably went up to Northwest. You know, you heard of Bakrian Marjana complex, you know, like they're going back into Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, and they settled down at the top of the north. Because some of the practices they follow, and there have been quite a few, like if you go on Amu They are the ones that we call Malechas later on. Um, no, Malechas, again, they, you know, if it depends on different part of the Rigveda itself. In parts of uh, Rig Veda, it says Mlecha um, is, is a bad person. And in another part of the Islam, Mlecha just means a foreigner. So it, it could be either. So Mlecha is, is, a, is a term rather than, uh, rather than a description of a particular tribe. Okay. But I think the Persians were probably Anus and Druhus. Druhus became Gandhara and Gandhara is further up north. And the, uh, the Anus probably went west towards the Iran and they became the Persians. And they followed, if you look at, I don't know if you have uh, heard of Avesta, uh, you know, uh, Avestans, and Zoroastrians. And if you look at their history, you know, their history goes back to around 1500, 1800 BC. And if you look at their gods and their history, the language is very similar to Sanskrit. A lot of the words, you know, there are some changes from Sa to Ha. Hapta Hindu. Hapta Hindu. Yeah, and so much so Hindu. that even Ahura Mazda, they say is a translation of Asura. Asura is a god, whereas for us, Sura is a god. For them, Sura is a bad person. For us, Asura is a bad person. So you can see there is a lot of relationship between what is written in Rig Veda and what is written in Zenda Vesta. So if you read both of them, you start to understand these things are probably related and probably come from the same basic principle, from basic knowledge in the same group of people rather than completely different people. I mean, they became different people later on because they migrated west and we stayed behind. 
And and what did you say particularly about the ESTs? ESTs, you know, they they didn't stop there. For example, the Mithraism was in Rome. So in ESTs were even further, even you know, further further uh, towards east. So they went Iraq in Egypt. They have found uh, um, you know Harappan seals, the evidence of uh, Harappan uh, villages in 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 Egypt. So in Rome, I mean Italy, we haven't found any Harappan uh, evidence, but we have found lots of evidence of Mithraism. Mithraism uh, uh, was uh, flourishing between first and fourth century uh, AD under the Roman rule. So the Mithraism is nothing but um, uh, you know Hinduism, Vedic principles going across there. They believed in Mitra rather than other gods, but they didn't believe in Christ. Stretching my imagination just too far, uh, there are still they still exist a, a community of Sufis in the Eastern Europe who consider horses as sacred, who do this uh, you know horse therapy and all, and their beliefs are also very 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 similar to Aryans. Um, I won't be surprised. I haven't come across that bit, but uh, I won't be surprised at all. You know, presented some original inputs here. And, you know, it's great to hear that finally, finally, Hindus are taking up the history of the um, Battle of the Ten Kings, because it's the major historical event within the Rig Veda. Uh, in fact, if I were the Indian government or the Pakistani government, I would, you know, open a theme park on the Ravi River, which happens to be the border between India and Pakistan. So this... This Ten Kings battle was actually the first Indo-Pak war, which I dare to add has been won by India. Um, <laughs> so, no, no, so this is very good. And of course, you know, we're all groping in the dark and, you know, discovering things. Um, um, so uh, as for the Yazidis, I would briefly add that in my opinion, they are part of a later emigration. They are not part of these Anawas defeated in that battle. You see, they, the battle must have been about 3000 BC. The emigration which brought the Mitanni people, the Kassites, and indeed the Yazidis to West Asia, was a thousand years later when the, when the Saraswati desiccated. And so there was a famine in India, and that's why there was all this migration. Anyway. You see, one thing that, that I find difficult, and there I tend to agree with the very first questioner, is this idea of uh, a moral superiority of Sudas vis-à-vis -vis his enemies. I mean, if you look at the map, it is Sudas who was being an imperialist. He was seeking to win more land. He was based in the Saraswati Basin. That was his uh, hereditary uh, fiefdom, so to speak. And so he was expanding to the east with his battle on the Yamuna and also to the west with his battle on the Ravi. And so because he had already penetrated too deep in their country, the Anava tribe, uh, well, decided to stop him. So they all got together because to them this was a really vital issue. So they forgot their internal quarrels. They all got together to defeat Sudas. And in the normal course of things, they would have done so. But you see, because of a combination of, of enormous good luck and, and strategic acumen, 
Sudans managed to win anyway. And so he conquered far land more to the west. And so that's why the Anawas had to flee. And there you get a, a part of the um, out of India scenario, where the Iranians leave India and make Afghanistan their, their center. Um, but so all this is just a normal human event. You know, I mean, if, if you talk about the war of, let's say, Napoleon against the English, in France, they will say, yeah, but Napoleon brought modern notions of equality and justice yeah. and yeah. so on. And the English were aristocrats and obscurantists, blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe, but that had nothing to do with the reason why the war was fought. It was simply Napoleon wanted to expand, the British wanted to expand. And so it was a clash of, of power. And so I'm afraid that in the case of the, the Vedas, the moral reading of you know a war of good against bad has only been read into it afterwards. And that at the time itself, well, it was just a war. Two people who wanted to win. At least, you know, that's 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 my impression so far. Maybe you have new inputs about that. Okay. I, I, th I think you, you're right, Dr. Wells, because, uh, you, know, you know, I was trying to um, just expand on what's written in that, that hymn. And but the, you're absolutely right. It's probably written long, long after the <laughs> itself. And they sort of made mm -hmm. for other people to believe that Siddhartha was trying to do some good instead of uh, being an expansionist, as you said, and as uh, our Mr. Ramakrishna says, yes, sir, he's absolutely right. He was trying to expand his, his empire, like all the kings did in history. I mean, even now, people are still doing it. Uh, so it's something mm -hmm. new, and I think it's um, avarice rather than uh, uh, belief in faith. But uh, the book says otherwise, obviously trying to justify what had happened. And luckily, he won. And it's... Mm -hmm. Say those Victor writes the history, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you very much. As far as I know, Anu went to today's Turkey and Greece. The Druyus went to Central Europe. Finally, Turvasu went to Central Asia. And the Yadu settled in today's Israel. Is this correct? That's slightly far-fetched, I think. Yeah, because there is no archaeological evidence to suggest these things. I mean, especially people moving into Greece. I haven't heard that one before. There was one book actually written by a Greek author. It was published about eight, nine years ago. We suggested that the Aryans came to Greece and uh, they are the, the professors of Alexander the Great, etc. But I think that's um, stretching our uh, imagination slightly. And uh, if you look at the the actual dispersion of people, Edus and Turvasas went south. I mean, Edu, you know, Sri Krishna is not from the north. He actually moved down south. Or okay, so and Turvasas is the southeast. Um, so we, and Anus, as Dr. El said, you know, they moved towards Turkey and you know, and uh, towards uh, uh, Iran and Iraq, and they probably later on became the Azidis and the, the Hittites and Mitannis and, and all those people. And uh, Central Europe, which again, you know, they probably much later, and they may uh, be transferred as uh, um, the faith being moved across. For example, like uh, Buddhism going into China, you know, Buddhists didn't go and invade China. The Buddhist preachers went there and spread the religion. So that's probably how it went to uh, Rome and Central Europe. I don't think the 
there is enough proof to suggest that the the Anus went all the way to Central Europe or uh, they went into Israel. Um, I don't think there's any uh, uh, evidence for that, unfortunately. Which Rukveda Haims uh, described the differences of beliefs, uh, like some details for uh, how they uh, believed and uh, why they went on for war for their beliefs. And uh, second question is, um, any other Indian texts that uh, mention this for or uh, some people involved in this uh, for? This question is in... The most details of the battle and the for and against and also the to's and fro's of the battle is given in hymn 18 of book 7. Uh, that's quite a, quite a long uh, um, you know, the hymn. So if you read that, um, the translations of, of several people, and I would uh, recommend uh, Prasanna Gautama's book, uh, probably the, the best one to read because... Uh, the earliest one is our Griffiths is, is extremely complex to read and understand. There are quite a few other translations, but uh, I think uh, the simplest one would be probably Prasanna Gautama's translation. So second question was uh, that uh, this Dastatna Youth was, uh, uh, is there any mention of this war in any other of our uh, Puranas or any such text? Uh, there, there, there are no mention of uh, uh, Dasharajna war, but there is mention of uh, both Sudas and Divodasa in um, uh, quite a few of the Puranas. Uh, but uh, Dasharajna war itself doesn't get a, a mention in as much detail as the Rigveda itself. Did, uh, there was a cultural destruction after the war. The one who won and uh, he, uh, he tried to destroy the culture. And my uh, second question is, uh, we have seen many of the uh, illogical things. We, we see to, from today's scientific experience, we see many illogical things in the, uh, that way. So what is your take on that? Well, I don't think there was any kind of destruction after the battle. Um, because as I said before, he uh, established the Vedic principles in the country, in the expanding uh, kingdom. And he made, uh, then it gradually progressed into uh, the Mahabharata and Ramayana when the people gradually migrated towards east into Gangetic plains. So it actually expanded and gradually evolved into present-day Hinduism. Um, I didn't understand the second question. What did, you, what did you say the second question was? So my second question was, when we today read the Rig Veda, so we uh, always see there are some, uh, some when, we see, uh, when we see today's world, we see some of the points which we can't understand or we can say it's illogical. Okay, today's people say it's illogical. So what is here the view on that? Because we can't connect with it today. I'm not sure what you mean by illogical, but there are uh, lots of, as I said in, uh, you know, in my talk, nearly 40% of the book has not been deciphered. It's been, the, the whole entire book has been translated, but not the entire book has been deciphered. So we don't understand like, lot of everything that's been said. I mean, for example, you know, only now people are beginning to understand that you know, there are some principles of quantum physics which were understood by the sages at that time. And how do you explain that? And you know, for example, just to give you a very simple example, I know we have we've been to any of the Hindu marriages. After the, the Mangal Sutra, they take you outside in bright sunshine and point to the scar, sky and then say, can you see Arundhati star? You're supposed to see Arundhati star. If you know which one is Arundhati star, you know, if you look at the Saptarshi Mandala, that is the, the big dip, the seven, star, seven stars, and one of the stars, Akura, 
This Arundhati star is one of the minor, it's a, it's a twin star. The second star is the Arundhati star. Even with a powerful telescope, this second star is difficult, if not impossible to see. So my question to you is, how did the, the sages in those days without a telescope knew the existence of the star? And how did they describe the star? Because they have described very accurately the position of the star in relation to these seven stars. So there are lots of things in the Vedic scriptures which we do not understand. And just because we do not understand, you can't dismiss it as illogical. So until the book is completely deciphered, I think you should take what you can understand leave the rest of them for the experts to decipher, or unless you are good enough to decipher it, that'd be even better. So uh, it's a bit difficult to say anything that's written there is illogical without understanding it. Yeah, I hope I have answered your question. Many of us think that uh, means when we read, so how it is possible? That yes, how we don't understand. Yeah, just because we don't understand doesn't mean it didn't, it didn't happen. Okay. Yes. So you said that this uh, Dasharaja Yuta is... Uh, uh, important one which which actually uh, is centered and then uh, like uh, m- making sure Vedas are prevalent, made sure uh, Vedas got prevalence and then Hinduism evolved to what it is today. But my question is like say, uh, uh, say go to uh, Bhagavata Purana or something which is uh, uh, written by Vyasa himself who gave us the Vedas. There he, uh, he says like the in the Tamasa uh, Manvantara, which is like many Manvantaras back, actually the Gajendra Moksha event happened and were explaining, like example, say uh, uh, the, the Gajendra himself, he, uh, Vyasa says that this uh, uh, elephant in the previous birth was a, uh, he describes that, that, that uh, uh, as Arya Dramina Sattamaha. Example, I mean, like, like Vyasa says that, that uh, elephant in his previous birth was a uh, South Indian Aryan king. So what I'm trying to say is like, it's not only like uh, 2000 years back or something. Uh, if you uh, put across what is there in the Vedas or Purana and, and everything, everything, it goes beyond what, what we are trying to say here. That's one thing. Uh, the second question is, um, so if we are saying uh, Aryan migration uh, theory inside or outside, why uh, only India has the Veda or, or the Hindu culture is having the Vedas as the epicenter of its uh, culture and not any other culture which is showcased outside of India. To be honest, I didn't understand the first question. It, didn't, it, made me, it, it looked more like a statement to me and I'm quite happy with what you said. Uh, the second question is, um, the Persians have a, what you call a Zendavesta. If you read, it's very similar to what is written in the Veda. It's in a different language. It's an Western language. And there's uh, no reason why we, if the Aryans did go outside, should take the whole entire Veda across there uh, to wherever they went. You know, they probably migrated towards um, the east, west, or wherever they went. And they probably didn't take the Vedas. And they, even if they did take the Vedas, they didn't uh, persist because, if, for example, Mitannis and Hittites, they left some uh, legacy, but they didn't leave. Uh, in the, the civilization didn't um, uh, continue into, as into present-day Turkish civilization. It gradually decided, you know, uh, descended into present, present civilization. So there are lots of reasons why the Vedas are not seen outside the country. And the people who uh, believe in the Aryan migration theory, they think that the Vedas were written by the people who came from outside to India. And so they believe that, uh, as you said, this is why Veda exists only in India, not outside. But that's not completely true. This is uh, very simple. I mean, never mind our opinion. 
what is the opinion of all the ancient commentators on the Rig Veda? I mean, people have commented like Shayana Acharya and so on. I mean, what has been their opinion of this uh, Dasharagya Yutham? You're quite right. You know, it's very interesting because I have looked through the um, um, various books and uh, um, scriptures trying to find out what did uh, you know all, all these famous people uh, said. About. There are lots of things written on Rig Veda. Okay, like for Pratisakyas, you know, been written quite a few Pratisakyas there on Rig Veda. But none of them actually discuss the events in Dasharajna and say whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. And they're more in terms of you know, the, looking at the rights and wrongs of what's written in Rig Veda and whether it's true or, or untrue. And secondly, if, if you look at a lot of these books written on, um, uh, uh, by the ancient commentators, they were trying to explain how to read Rig Veda and how to understand the Rig Veda. So uh, they, they were not trying to uh, uh, analyze the thing by what is right, what is wrong. And uh, um, as you rightly said, you know, Dasharajna is, is, is maybe uh, my opinion or, or our opinion and not the, uh, our ancestors' opinion. But I have not found any, any book which actually made a specific comment on Dasharajna, unless Dr. Elst mm-hmm. has got any ideas that I haven't come across. Dr. Elst? Not, uh, not pertinent to this one. I mean, of course, there's a lot to say about this, uh, this encounter. And so it is indeed very important in India's history and indeed in world history because it says the Iranians and the Greeks and so on from India. And so they later set up their own history in Iran, in Armenia, in Greece, in Albania. And so, you know, the, the impact on world history is enormous. Um, you know, but on this particular question, I don't, do not have much to add. You know, again, I, I repeat my enthusiasm, you know, for finally, you know, this focus on, on the Dasharajna battle, because it was so important, not just for India, for the rest also. Thank you very much, Dr. And we relate to the Akkadian, Assyrian peoples uh, with the Asuras mentioned in the Vedas. Cuneiform uh, records, uh, there are mentioning of a uh, Akkadian king Sargon and uh, and his son uh, defeating the coalition forces of uh, Elam, uh, Marahashi and Meluhan troops. So is there any possibility that they have conquered the areas of IVC and then this Akkadian peoples uh, mentioned in Vedas as Asuras? This is my question. Asuras, if you, if you go to the period, Asuras are not bad people. All right. I mean, what we understand by Asura now is means like demons and uh, monsters. But in the, during the Rigvedic time, Asuras and Suras were, uh, were two different parts of the same coin. And uh, the, uh, I know about the Akkadian uh, battle. Akkadian battle, they, the Akkadians and the Elamites were, uh, were bitter enemies like what India and Pakistan is now. And they had several battles. And uh, they, this all happened on the other side of the Zagros Mountains. Okay, and then they... They had very little to do with the Indus Valley civilization at the time. There was a lot of um, uh, merchant uh, uh, business going across between Akkadian Empire as well as the Indus Valley. If you remember, Akkadian Empire happened by the time by the time Akkadians actually came to power. The Indus Valley civilization was uh, on the decline because you see this, this happened in the 14th century to 15th century BC. And by 19th century BC, the uh, you know, Harappan civilization was going downhill. 
and by 13th century bc it didn't exist so there was not much of a you know harappan civilization when akkadians were uh, were in power you, you may be talking with sumerians yes with between sumeria and um, uh, harappans there was a lot of uh, um, movement between the two civilizations well especially the harappans going towards the, the sumerians but the akkadians came much later there is a question from a participant how old is the rigved ah good question how long is a string <laughs> uh, nobody really knows and um, you know it um, uh, the only thing we know for sure is it was composed over a period of 600 years because it is so huge and the language from say uh, book 1 to book 10 or uh, the oldest book book 6 to book 1 uh, is 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 different it has evolved over a period of time so based on that they know it was composed over 100 years and there's some people like witzel uh, think that it was composed around 1400 bc he uh, uh, bases this on uh, uh, movements in bactria magiana complex civilizations um, uh, dis- disappearing around that period and then there are some evidence of the uh, the, the chariots and the horses coming down towards the uh, uh, towards indus valley civilization so there are the lots of ifs and buts and some people claim it was composed around 6000 bc some people say or 1400 1500 bc and uh, i mean realistically speaking i have absolutely no idea when it was composed uh, definitely during the um, you know as i said some of the evidence that shows what um, i gone through in this talk it must be before the mature harappan phase and there is there is a lot of evidence to show that the the battles in the vedas and also in the puranic vedas battles took place in the fields they didn't go and destroy the towns and cities and rigveda has got i mean one of the things against people talking about against rigveda is it is a pastoral document there are people in rigveda were all farmers and cow herders but if you look at that and there is there is a stratification of kinship like who is a samrat who is a rajan who is a rajaka and there is sabhas and samitis why if you are a farmer out in the in the in the fields why would you want a sabha why would you want a samiti you don't want all that you want something you need that only if there is an urban civilization just because they don't mention brick in the rigveda so there is no mention of brick in rigveda anywhere so they've taken that as a reason why it was not an urban civilization it was a, a pastoral civilization living in the forest and in the jungles and in the fields which i don't think is true it doesn't it is not borne out by the vedas and why would they mention brick because uh, it is primarily a spiritual advice well in fact you know rigveda may not have the uh, um, bricks but the atharvana veda does definitely has because it gives you the the way how the agnas are done and it tells you how to build the uh, the agnas and there are all different shapes of agnas for different agnas so uh, the agna kundas the, the way it is built is described and the, the way it is described is gives you an idea but there are harappan bricks is no doubt about it so i don't understand the logic behind why the this is this was you know to tell you this well i'm i'm but else still bear me out because this was done by people during the you know 18th and 19th centuries to for their own advantage you know they were they came to this country and they were trying to uh, subjugate the population one way of subjugation is moral superiority so if you tell if you tell the, the country you go to that you know 
our ancestors came and gave you civilization. Now, we have come down here now because your civilization deteriorated. We are trying to uplift you again. Now, you keep on saying it again and again and again and again. You start to believe. It's my hypnotism. This is what they did. And unfortunately for us, even after independence, it's still being perpetuated. 70 years after the independence, we are still talking about, you know, I was, a few years ago, I was in Delhi Public School giving a talk on Harappan civilization. I was quite shocked to see the textbooks which still describe the Harappan civilization topic the same as it was in 1964 when I was going to school. It has not changed. And they still talk about Aryan migration. They still talk about the Vedic um, knowledge brought in from outside. I mean, that is, to me, is really shameful. And that should be changed. Good evening, Doctor. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm very recently trying to understand Vedas and Upanishads to a little deeper degree. So please excuse me if my question sounds a little primitive. I'm still trying to understand where it all fits in. In Puranas, we have read that there was a great war between Vishwamitra. He was still the called the King Kaushika. Became, he became the Maharshi under. And then between the sage Vasishta, who he was all constantly in the competition. Okay. Yeah. I, might, I just wanted to ask, does this Dasharagnya war has anything in common between the war between these two sages? Or did this get escalated to Dasharagnya war later on when they collected the others to help them out in this? I'm just trying to get things in my right perspective. Just to give you a little brief um, uh, overview of all these names, Vasishta and Vishwamitra. You know, these are all not individual people. They're all family names. Okay. Vishwamitra comes from a place called Ghadi, Ghadi kingdom. So Ghadi's son was Vishwamitra, who uh, the original Vishwamitra, who uh, was, you know, because he had a fight with uh, Vasishta. I mean, I'm sure you've read the story about him going to Vasishta's ashram and wanted the Kamadenu cow and had a fight and Vasishta destroyed his army. And that's when he decided he wanted to become a Brahmarshi. All right, so he went to the forest and a uh, thousand years of whatever and all that, and he became Brahmash. Okay. And then their descendants, okay. But that that, that uh, sort of rivalry between the Vasishta and Vishwamitra is not between Vasishta and Vishwamitra, it's between the two families. So the descendants, okay. The Vishwa, the Gadi's son, Vishwamitra, who fought with the Vasishta at the time, is not the same Vishwamitra and Vasishta of Dashadnava. Because the, the, the years are quite a, quite a long period between those, these two events. Okay. But there is always a rivalry between Vishwamitra and, and Vasishta. So if, if you look at even Ramayana and Mahabharata, these, these sages get mentioned. And if you're looking at a few hundred years difference, I mean, you can't imagine a human being living for a thousand years. All right. Yeah? So they're, 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 they're different. So they, but at the time of Dasharajna, there was a huge conflict between these two sages. Okay. Vishwamitra takes the side of Kavi Chaimana and Vasishta takes the side of uh, Sudas. The only thing we know is Vasishta was slightly older than Vishwamitra during this period. I'll get a better perspective into the, the scriptures in a, once I get Thank back you. to them and read. Thank you so much. Sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kashyap, I have one question. Yeah. Uh, a little later in the Rig Veda, there's a mention of the third generation of King Sudas. Uh, his name is King Somak. 
and yeah. uh, uh, it's called the Varshgir War, which yeah. was fought in Afghanistan, where these Sarai exact Yuri. same tribes, Sarai. Sarai Yuri, yeah. yeah, the exact same tribes who were defeated during King Sudas's time, they were always trying to uh, get even with them, and enter into this uh, fertile land past the the Sindhu uh, civilization. Yeah. So uh, in that war too, uh, there was a different strategy used by King Somak, who's the third generation of King Sudas. He he inst- uh, King Sudas let them come into his territory and then fight them, but King Somak went into their territory and defeated them. He didn't allow them to come into their territory. Yeah. So uh, th- there's nothing spoken about why this continuous uh, you know uh, affiliation towards king sudas and his lineage and to prove how they protected uh, this territory from going into the hands of different people so isn't this a kind of uh, i i know we need to doubt our our vedas and you know we are open to that but if there is a particular uh, lineage of kings who is constantly talked about in the vedas I think sometimes we need to accept that there must be something special about these uh, these families and how they fought for their territory, whether they were coming in or going out. Plus, Vashishth and Vishwamitra. I think Vashishth was also the guru of Sri Ram. Uh, so, why this uh, this uh, uh, affiliation towards a particular lineage? I would like to uh, understand from. Well, as I started in the beginning, you know, when going to the prelude of the the, the battle itself, uh, you know. looking at the the family tree i mean these are all children of the same same uh, uh, you know uh, people at the top you know like ila and ikshwaku okay ikshwaku generation becomes rama and then ila's generation come into sudas anus grihus and uh, truvasas and all those people what they're trying to show in these books is that you know the the youngest person kuru who showed himself uh, when his father asked for his uh, as a youth to be this a righteous person and as uh, mr ramakrishnan said and that tells to uh, corroborate in the end you know there is no such thing as good and bad and they were always trying to do the same thing trying to expand their um, their countries but one thing that is sure is that you know the the sudasas lineage or bharata's lineage as we talk instead of saying sudasas lineage it should be king bharata's lineage king bharata is the 18th generation above sudas king bharata's lineage they insisted on vedic values and vedic uh, beliefs and they wanted to establish the vedic vedas okay so obviously what it means is probably the other people were not as keen on the vedic principles and the aryan principles i mean it's only an assumption tell you i haven't read this anywhere else yeah okay so this and if you look follow them follow this through it comes down to uh, your your mahabharata war the kuru is actually a descendant of sudas Yeah, and then the, the kingdom starts, and then you get this uh, division between two cousins in the Pandavas and Kauravas and battle. And again, the battle again in Krishna explains in in Bhagavad Gita and why why is there war between cousins because they're all you know uh, blood brothers. Feel they shouldn't be fighting each other. But Krishna explains you know why this thing is done is that done because of dharma. All right. So this is follows through, and I think he probably says it better. Persist for a period of time, and why it persisted, and maybe because of that, I think we have Hinduism from what it is now. If and as I was saying, you know, flippantly, uh, I didn't mean that it's, it would happen. But if it had gone the other way, if uh, Somaka had given up and waited for, uh, uh, <clears throat> if I remember his name, um, is Vishtaspa, Vishtaspa to come across, eh? 
Krishna's part to come across and uh, defeat the Swamakans, Hadeva, their two brothers, Hadeva and Swamakans. And they de- de- defeated them. And then they we would all become Zoroastrians. We'd be following the Agni, uh, Indra, and uh, whether it's good or bad, don't know. Yeah? Uh, but they are, that's where we are now. Because, so we have to believe that what we have is right. And so what happened then is right. So because we believe uh, Hindu uh, faith is what we have. And we believe that that's the best faith that we, we could have. And if not, we would have been following Zoroastrian beliefs. Yes, uh, in fact, in, in, in the in the Rigveda, it's also mentioned while the wild is, uh, you know, describing this war. It says that uh, the other side, the Confederacy, did not worship Indra and Varun. It's mentioned in the Rigveda, and yes. also they were more on the side of greed and materialism. Yes. So yes, there is a mention of uh, you know some sort of a moral superiority if you go through it. Uh, so, as Dr. S said, this was this was sort of probably added on later on. At the time, well, the question was probably moral, not moral superiority, it's a question of expansionism. Like, you know, all emperors and all kings in ages, they all wanted to make the kingdom bigger and better and richer. And, you know, I think that's what Sudas wanted to do and that's what Chayamana wanted to do. That is what Somakhan Sahadeva wanted to do. That's what Vishtaspa wanted to do. Is that, by the way, that's my next book, Battle of Vashagiras, coming probably in the this year. I mean, there is no end to questions on this subject anyway. We know that. Uh, but uh, just to just one comment and one question. Comment is that, uh, I mean, as a colonial strategy, calling the Rig Veda pastoral might actually be counterproductive because you see the uh, colonized people, Hindus, they actually worship a pastoral person who is Krishna, who is a cowherd. So I don't think this is, even if it is a colonial strategy, First of all, I don't think it is, but even if it is, then it's not a very good colonial strategy because that will only elevate the status of Yadavas to nation builders. Okay. So the, that being said, the other part is I want to know what you think of the Indra motif within the two epics, Ramayana and Mahabharata, because uh, I feel that there's a very strong Indra motif uh, in the sense that Rama actually ascends Indra's chariot in the ultimate fight with Ravana. That is one part. And uh, throughout the Mahabharata, you know that uh, Arjuna and Bhima, yes, yeah. basically Indra and Maruts are fighting side by side, which is as it is in the Rig Veda. Yes. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, as I said, you know, the Indra doesn't disappear until much later after the Vedic uh, um, book has been composed and uh, probably finished and the Vedic uh, language itself is gone. Um, so I think it continues as I was saying, you know, it, it continued till the period of Shatavahanas, probably 3rd and 5th century AD. And Indra doesn't really disappear until after that. I think the main reason was because Indra was, is portrayed as a rather violent and uh, aggressive uh, god, you know, like Zeus, you know, of the Greek gods. So that's probably put a lot of people off. And uh, we had uh, these uh, righteous gods like Sri Krishna and Sri Rama, which became the pantheon of, uh, of Indian Hinduism. And it, this is only my uh, guess, I may be wrong, but that's probably why Indra sort of petered out over a period of a uh, few hundred years. I hope I answered your question. Questions in the chat box. I'll read them one by one. I'll read them to, together. Uh, the first one says, Puranic and Vedic gods are different. So how, how does this transi- transition of Vedic gods to Puranic gods ha- happen? Number two, 
Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma was were not God in the Ved, gods in Vedas, but they, then they became gods. How did they become gods? And number three, in Ramayan period and in Mahabharat period, who did who was it that people used to worship? Well, I mean, I think the answer to all three are probably very similar. I think, yeah, in in, in, in as I said in the in Vedas, the main deities were. Um, uh, Indra, Varuna, Mitra, Brihaspati, okay, along with the rivers like Saraswati, Bhagirathi, and Yamuna. Whereas in the Puranic period, you know, it became Sri Rama, Krishna, uh, and, and then Vishnu. Um, but if you look at the Vedas, late, late books of Vedas, Vishnu does come into being. And Rudra is also mentioned in the, in the later books of Vedas. Uh, so it's, the things change because as I said, in the Indus Valley civilization or the Harappan civilization migrated from uh, where what happened was as the, the, the river Saraswati dried up, the people started to migrate towards the Gangetic plain. Okay. And then they're looking at the Puranas and, and then the Vedas, uh, the Kuru, the Puru Bharata dynasty uh, went towards, uh, the, um, towards the Kuru kingdom. They also migrated towards the east. And Ikshvaku dynasty started to uh, get into prominence. And then Sri Rama came into being, like uh, Panchala Kosalas, and the Kosala kingdom became powerful. Okay, so, they, so gradually, they were, they, were, they were praising, you know, they were um, uh, had Indra and Varuna as their gods at the time. Okay, and then later on, and, and Vishnu, Shiva were actually there towards the end of uh, the Vedas in the book 10 and book 1. Has got him, uh, for example, Gayatri Mantra is in book 10. It is not a Puranic uh, uh, scripture. It is, it is in, uh, uh, in, in Rig Veda. So the, towards the end of uh, the, the Vedic period, a lot of these Hindu uh, gods actually were in existence. Uh, Vishnu was there, Rudra was there, Bhaspati was there. And gradually when it started to move into the Gangetic Plain and the, the Kosala Kingdom and the Sri Rama Kingdom, uh, Kingdom became more prominent, and then Mahabharata occurred and Sri Krishna became more prominent, as you went towards the post-Vedic period and towards the uh, post-Buddhism you know, and Jainism became prominent. And once the Buddhism and Jainism started to uh, decrease, that's when Krishna and Rama became more and more prominent. And as I was saying, you know, the, the Indra was the main deity in, in northwestern, western parts of India till about 3rd or 4th century AD. So Shatavana, so they were, the royal deity was Indra. So Krishna and Rama came much later. So it is a gradual movement from the Vedic gods into the, the Puranic or the uh, um, um, Mahabharata and Sri Ramayana gods. Like when we are talking about Vedas, shouldn't we take a holistic view rather than just a subjective view of Rig Veda? Because the guy who actually gave us Vedas, Vyasa himself says, Veda Shastra Param Nasti and also adds Nadaivam Keshavat Param. So uh, and, and also like uh, if you go to earlier, uh, like even before Ramayana Mahabharata, if you go to say Katopanishads, that's where they say like Tadvishno uh, param, Paramam Param. I, I'm not saying like, okay, and also like uh, in Gita also Krishna says, uh, say, Vedaishta Sarvaihi Ahmeva Vedyo. So when it comes to Agni, Vayu, Varuna, whatever, it is actually denoting me alone. So uh, shouldn't we take a holistic view, even though we are uh, going through the Vedas, because it's, it's when we talk about uh, Hinduism or like Sanatana Dharma, the overall perspective is important rather than just going to a shloka and then subjectivity dissecting only those shlokas. I, I think you're right. I mean, the, the essence of Vedas is actually says that. I mean, he, 
he doesn't actually say anywhere that you have to pray to indra only or agni only or uh, um, one particular god i mean vedra is vedic i'm talking about rigveda mainly because we are talking about dashrajna i mean the vedas is all the four vedas and you know, all the brahmana brahmanas and arnakas have got lots of stories about it and including puranas puranas where they be i'm using it as the kindlest so it doesn't say anywhere that i know of where it says that you should only pray to particular god or should only use a particular you know a hymn to do particular thing i don't think so now i think you are absolutely right i mean you have to take it as a, a holistic view for the entire vedic scripture not just the rigveda i mean you know very well I mean, rigveda is the first part of the four vedas the other three vedas are subjugated to the uh, what say it says in the rigveda So they're all just explain explanations of the you know, how and what should be done in the Rigveda. So you are absolutely right. It, you have to take a holistic view, not sort of get stuck onto one aspect of it. I mean, we are talking about Dashrajna because this is, as Dr. Els said, this is an event which has got a paramount importance and is pivotal in, in, in what happened afterwards. Not uh, what happened at the battle, but what happened afterwards. So this, this is why... you know she should be given the importance it should deserves that's what we are trying to say we're not trying to say that he got to cone pray to indra and he is the only god now that's not right you are absolutely right you have to take a holistic or she says that uh, the archaeologically uh, the archaeological survey of india has discovered pashupati seal in the harappan site which considered which is considered to be a proto shiva so what importance shiva has in the harappan period and vedic period hypothesis put forward by a few people and disproved by a few other people at the same time you know there are there are people who have actually said why couldn't it be indra because indra is because the lord of cattle a lord of animals so why couldn't it be you know if pashupati could be indra rather than rudra because rudra actually come towards the end of uh, the vedic period and you're right it's possible it's, that is rudra rather than shiva um, but without is able to decipher the um, you know indus valley script it's difficult to say what it means i just had a comment there uh, dr kashyap there is a speaker earlier dr murgendra not dr acharya murgendra vinod ji he had mentioned that the pashupati seal is actually a jajman sitting for a yagya and you know wearing all the headgear and all of that so his interpretation is it is a jajman sitting for a yeah yeah we just wanted to put that out to you i i didn't have any question a question here at all thank you it is entirely possible it looks looks like ajamana and you know in in agna you need to have an ajamana adipati so he could be ajamana he wearing all this headdress and uh, starting his agna well i i would disagree with that 